I'm Dr. Hans House, and welcome to the University of Iowa podcast. We're going to be speaking today about community-acquired pneumonia and a little bit about bronchitis. We're going to—I can't do any lecture without reflecting on the historical significance, of course. Uh, we're talking a little about the etiology and epidemiology, and that's really important because that drives your antibiotic choices, and that's the main point we're going to talk about today. A little bit about the diagnosis and definition. Um, there's a little surprises there, and then we're going to go through some x-rays. But the main point is recommendations for management, especially antibiotic choices, and understanding the etiology, understanding the type of, of bacteria that can be involved is going to drive your choices of, of drug. Pneumonia as a disease is recognized relatively late in medicine compared to other diseases that we know of. It was first described in 1761. Now, why is this, this such a common, very extremely common, very important um, disease re recognized relatively late? It's simply because it couldn't be seen. It's something that goes on in the inside of the body, and it couldn't be seen until dissections became more prevalent. In 1816, Lenek used a stethoscope for the first time to really be hear more accurately the changes in the, in the lung sounds. And of course, the big step came in 1885 when we developed an x-ray, and we could actually see this process going on in a live patient for the first time. Now, prior to Linek, examining a patient was somewhat awkward, to say the least, uh, if you want to listen to the chest. So he dis dis discovered by using this simple wooden tube that uh, you could isolate the sounds, you could hear the sounds more accurately, and you get a better exam. And this is what has become, now we wear around our necks all the time. Like I said, the big advance came with Rogen when he developed basically the process of, of taking x-rays. Now, this picture is his wife's hand, and he loved this picture. This is the first x-ray, first medical x-ray ever taken right there. Um, he showed this off and said, this is an amazing tool I've just developed. I'm going to show this to you. And he took a picture of his wife's hand, and then he went out to another exposition, and he showed it to the other scientists, and he goes, this is so cool. And he took another picture of his wife's hand. 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 That's what happened to her. She got leukemia. Oops. So, this new technology was, you know, people were a little nervous about the idea. And this is uh, from uh, from the the magazine Punch. And this is the new new rodent of photography. And people saw this as maybe, you know, I'm not sure if these things are a good thing that are passing through my body. Certainly didn't do Mrs. Rodent any good, did it? You could go on and on for days about all the famous people who died of pneumonia, and that's kind of pointless. But I have to mention one because I think it's interesting. William Henry Harrison was elected president of the United States in 1840. This guy loved to talk, and he would talk and talk and talk. And um, his inauguration speech lasted an hour and 45 minutes. Can you imagine sitting and listening for an inauguration speech for an hour and 45 minutes, this guy talking about nothing? Worst of all, it was a driving snowstorm that day, and this is January in Washington, D.C. He died of pneumonia a month later. So he goes down history as the longest speech and the shortest term in office. Okay, the clearly respiratory complaints are very common, which is why we're here during this month, which is why Chuck just told you about all about asthma. Um, these are very common complaints. Usually it's cough, usually it's asthma. Of all the patients who come in with some sort of respiratory complaint, very few, about one in 20, are actually being diagnosed with pneumonia, actually finally diagnosed with pneumonia. So most of the time, they're diagnosed with bronchitis or URI. Asthma certainly is a big one. 
and sinusitis. And you can and you can imagine, you can see how these are related. Certainly, if sinusitis, you're going to have you can get sinusitis after your URI. If you have sinusitis, your asthma is going to be worse. It's hard to tell the difference between asthma and bronchitis, and certainly there's some uh, basically you know bronchitis has happened once, and asthma is when it happens every every time. The important thing about all these most common diagnoses is they're not treated with antibiotics. Not treated with antibiotics. Pneumonia is treated with antibiotics. Bronchitis, upper respiratory tract infections, and asthma, except in the case of acute exacerbation of chronic bronchitis and someone who's COPD, except in that situation, these, these diagnoses are not improved by, by treatment of antibiotics. Use of antibiotics for sinusitis is controversial. It probably helps in those who have true sinusitis, but the vast majority of patients that we're giving out ZPAX2 or for back, prescriptions for Bactrim2 really don't have true sinusitis. They just have some face pain and would do just fine with decongestants. So how do we find the ones that really need the, this, these antibiotics? Those that get pneumonia are going to get it from these bugs. And what's the big one on this list? Strep pneumo, exactly. And that's, that's number one. And the vast majority of cases are being caused by strep pneumo. Any drug that you use that's going to treat strep pneumo, you're going to catch cataralis, you're going to catch staph aureus, except for, except for MRSA. That's a different case, and we're going to get, get back to that. But what you're not going to treat, um, what you need a different type of drug for in general, is these atypicals, mycoplasm, chlamydia, legionella. You're not going to find out which one they've got. It's really hard to figure out like, which of those atypicals the person actually has. And it's hard to tell, and you can't tell from a, from a chest X-ray, but you need to cover for all these things. So we'll get back to that when we talk about um, drugs to choose. How do you get pneumonia? You have all these things in your mouth. You have all these things in your nasopharynx. That's how these things live. It is normal for you to aspirate some of your pharyngeal secretions when you sleep. Everyone does that a little bit. Obviously, if you have more aspiration, you're going to have more of an inoculum of your own bacteria going into your lungs. Things that, that blunt protective reflexes include, of course, seizures and strokes, but also intoxication. It is possible to get pneumonia from a direct inhalation of droplets. This is less common. However, it is the most common form of transmission in the case of Legionella and in the case of a viral pneumonia, which is influenza. And as you know, once you get influenza from a virus, you, then your immune system is compromised. You are more prone to develop a bacterial separative pneumonia. What protects you from getting from this, from this normal uh, aspiration, which protects you from your own nasopharynx secretions? The mucus lining of your nasopharynx, okay? The motilized, the, the cilia epithelium of the trunchiobronchial tree moves that mucus up out of the trunchiobronchial tree so that you can swallow it and get rid of it. So if you have some sort of condition which is going to make you more likely to aspirate, you're going to more likely to get pneumonia. If you have a poor immune response and you can't handle that inoculum that does go down into your lungs, you're going to more likely to get pneumonia. Comorbidities, other viral diseases, including influenza. And finally, and most importantly, if you have chronic injury to epithelium, such as from smoking, that trachobronchial tree is not going to work as well. You're not going to have the ciliate epithelium anymore, and you're not going to get rid of that uh, infected mucus anymore, and it's going to sit in there, and you're going to develop infections. And that's how you get COPD. That's how you get acute um, exacerbation of chronic bronchitis. Finally, yes, you can get it from increased pathogen load. This is certainly the case during the winter when you have um, a lot of people in this closed space and you're passing a lot of viral uh, diseases around, also in the cases of uh, overcrowding like in jails or barracks or something like that. 
Okay, simple question. What's the definition of ammonia? Okay, infection in the lungs. That's pretty much it. Okay, and usually uh, the way the way it's technically defined is infiltrate on a chest X-ray, because that's how that we describe the, the, the that there is an infiltrate. There, there, there's some sort of infection in the lungs in the appropriate clinical setting. Okay, if you have a cough, you have a fever, if you have infiltrate in chest X-ray. That's pneumonia. Okay, now. Uh, there's a lot of findings in history, physical, history and physical that's going to make it more likely that, for that x-ray to be positive, but the x-ray is still a part of the diagnosis. Um, certainly, if you have abnormal vital signs, if you have abnormal breath sounds, if you have abnormal pulse ox, um, that is going to be more likely to have a positive, more likely associated with a positive uh, chest x-ray. But you can follow these decision rules and stuff, but, you know, in the end, if you really want to know, you've got to get the chest x-ray. The chest x-ray is part of our definition, yet it's not the gold standard for diagnosis. What's the gold standard for diagnosis in pneumonia? The diagnosis for consolidation of lungs. No? Plain x-ray is usually what we use. But a CT scan is the most sensitive for consolidation. Yes, if you have a, if you grow something on a tracheobronchial aspirate or a bronch, um, that's that's a pretty good indication. That's that's obviously done in, in a in a in a inpatient in the critical care setting. That would be the thing to do. You're not going to do that in, in patients with community acquired pneumonia who just come into the ER. However, a CT scan is probably the best way to find and infiltrate. Yet, you're not going to do a CT scan in every patient coming into. Why? It's expensive. It's just too radiation. Why? Because the chest X-ray is going to get most of them, but it's not going to get all of them. So the important thing, the first lesson is, recognize the limitation of the chest X-ray. It may be negative because they're too dehydrated. It may be negative because you just didn't see the X-ray, because there is some inter-observer variability. So let's go through a few films, see if we all agree on, their, on these diagnoses. Here we have a 24-year-old female from the University of Iowa. She's come in with uh, cough, uh, right chest pain, um, she's had fever for a couple days, rusty colored sputum, and shaking chills. What do you think of the chest x-ray? Okay, so is this pneumonia? Okay, yes, I think this is a, a straightforward case. I think we can all agree that you have a presence of an infiltrate in the appropriate clinical setting. So this we all, we all agree is pneumonia, okay? This one's a little, little different. This is a patient who's a nursing home resident uh, Lantern Park, she's 82 years old. She fell last night. We don't know exactly the mechanism of the fall. And she is sent over the next day because the nursing home staff note her to be a little more altered than usual. Now, she's already got Alzheimer's, so, so it's hard to tell what's, what's normal for her. She does not have a fever. She's a little bit tachypnic, and she's tender. She's tender on her left, left chest. Is this pneumonia? Okay. okay. It could be, but it could also be some other, it could also be trauma. So it's not entirely clear, even though you've got an infiltrate on the chest x-ray, but... Um, Will you treat her with antibiotics? Yeah, would you, that's a good question. Yes, so would I you would. treat her with antibiotics for this patient? I would. No way. What would you do with it then, then Mike? Uh, immunocompromised. 
I think that you that I would definitely admit this patient to observe them, because if it is a pulmonary contusion, she doesn't have a lot of of uh, reserve, and she gets some VQ mismatching. She's going to deteriorate pretty fast. But yeah, I think you probably want to cover her for for she's infection right. because because exactly she's got all the risk factors there are, there are for pneumonia, and she's not going to mount a response. So not entirely clear. Okay, here's another one. This is one of our many friends who lives under the bridge. And uh, he's a, we'll just say he's a well-known to service. Um, and he comes in in his, in his usual state, which is um, not conscious. And uh, he's not talking to you very much. He was found down by Johnson County. Um, and he doesn't give any history. He's not complaining of a cough because he's not complaining of anything because he's not talking. But he is hot. He's 40 degrees. Chest x-ray shows this. What's going on? Uh, let's say we propped him up and we got managed to get this picture. Okay. People are saying possible abscess. You see the, uh, this mass here. You see the air fluid level. And it's right at the bottom of the right main stem bronchus, which is what people are going to have at the bottom of it, the aspirate. So this, here's an alcoholic who's had too much, who's now aspirated his pharyngeal con their stomach contents probably, and he's, got, he's developing a nice staph aureus abscess in his lung. lung so this is a pulmonary abscess. This is a patient I saw with, oh gosh, was it Jason or was it Matt? I think it was Jason. Yeah, I thought it was Jason. Uh, this patient uh, is a world traveler. Um, he is, uh, uh, he's, he's a legend in his own mind. Uh, and he, uh, he had found a hospital in Dubai or something like that, and he was in Canada last week or something like that. And very thin, he's cachectic, he comes in with a very high fever to 40 degrees, uh, he's uh, short of breath, um, he's a uh, low pulse ox, I think it was like 78 on room air, but it came up to like you know, high 80s, low 90s on, on 15 liters, not on a breather. And this is his chest x-ray. Um, he's been losing a lot of weight. He said 60 pounds over the last six months. Okay. So the, the, the findings are he's got diffuse findings, right? They're kind of maybe patchy, kind of, maybe patchy. Maybe they're infiltrates. So he's got diffuse patchy infiltrates. Disease we fortunately don't see very often anymore. Certainly not in Iowa, but certainly see it in LA all the time. This is pneumocystis pneumonia. This is PCP. This is and and he had a new diet. He is, he did not know it, but he had HIV. He had actually well at this point he has AIDS now because he has, he meets the definition. He's got an AIDS defining illness, which is PCP, and his CD4 count was. Uh, less than 100, I can't remember what it was, but his, his white blood cell count, perfect white blood cell count, was less than 2,000. And uh, he, presented with, he presented with florid P PCP, which is uh, um, not very common. You probably won't see a lot of cases of this uh, during your residency here. I love this case. Nice lady, really nice lady. She's so sweet. And she's 60 years old, and she was, came into the ER for, for cough. And she had been in her, uh, she went to her primary care provider like uh, a couple days beforehand 
um, for cough because she, uh, and she got a Z-Pack. She's had this cough for two weeks now. She took the Z-Pack a couple days ago. She's, I think she's just finished her pills or she's about to finish her pills. And she still has the same cough. It hasn't changed her symptoms at all. She's not febrile. She's got a little bit of pain in her left chest. What do you guys think? She's got a massive pleural effusion in the left and completely white out her lung. Or it might be. She's never had any surgeries, but it could be a pleural effusion or it could be complete absence of her lung. Uh, no breast sounds on that side. So she had no breast sounds on, the, on, that, on that affected side. I don't have a pleural effusion. We actually, we thought about that but we knew we wanted, we wanted a CT scan anyway, so we went right to CT scan. And in fact, that confirmed, what showed was, this is not a pleural fusion, and this is actually a complete absence of the lung. And the lungs has completely collapsed on that side due to, because she has an end on obstructive cancer on the end of her bronchus on the left side completely obstructing her left bronchus, and that lung has then, without air, has completely collapsed. Yeah. And then does so that fill up with fluid? Does it just happen over two weeks? Uh, well, the lung collapse happened, I don't know when. No, I don't know when the, the lung collapse happened, but, but, the, but the tumor's been there for a lot longer than two weeks. Yeah. She just didn't know about it. That was her initial diagnosis. She had never smoked in her life, of course. Poor guy. Yeah, probably. And, and, and of course, and she, had a nice, she had a nice patient sign. And that's just because of death, of course. So, anyway. That was squamous cell. I, I didn't know much more about that. I think it was, I think she didn't, didn't do very well. 58-year-old uh, gentleman with history of CHF. Comes in with uh, chest pain, shortness of breath. Feels like he can't breathe. This man exertion. Infiltrate? Yeah, maybe. Here, maybe there. Uh, lateral was uh, not available. No, it was, uh, it, uh, it just, yeah, pretty much the same thing. Okay, look a little, there's like a big something there. Or maybe uh, lymph nodes. His BMP was uh, 2,000. They just, just a lot of fluid. And he had known infection. But it's hard to tell, and this is really ambiguous. Yeah, but look at the azagraph. <coughs> I mean, that's one thing you can look for in your CHF patients, too. That could be a thin little slip, not a big break. He's got some curly B lines. So he's actually got some lines. Maybe at the beginning of some fluid and fissures. Like, you can see fluid here. So. There's definitely cephalization, and that's actually what I picked up on this film when I did this film. But BMP kind of helped me that. Okay, last one, 30-year-old uh, uh, graduate student here, um, comes in with cough, um, shortness of breath, uh, chest pain, hurts to breathe, uh, fever to uh, 38 degrees. So possibly a Westermark sign on the left. Uh-huh. Yep. 
So you're worried about maybe a PED in this patient? Well, this film's normal, actually. So this is normalized right to the rim. I don't know what the patient had. So. Could have had a PED, which is, could be normal, or it just could be reactive airway disease. There's a little bit of splinting, which is the most common finding for uh, PE. Okay, further on about diagnosis. We talked about chest X-ray, and we recognize the limitations of the chest X-ray. Um, in terms of other forms of diagnosis, cultures. Okay, this is where the uh, intensivist in the room is going to jump all over me. Um, sputum cultures are useless. Um, if you are doing, if you are treating an outpatient, if you are seeing a patient with community-acquired pneumonia in the ER, you are likely to send them home. Don't bother with sputum cultures. If you, have, if you ask them to spit in a cup, that's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to spit in a cup. That doesn't tell you anything about what's going on in their lungs. The yield is so low, it's a joke. Even the American Thoracic Society even says this. Now, the IDSA, which is the big, who is the big ID people who live their entire lives by the, by the cultures, they haven't quite come to that grips yet, but, but they're nearing that. Now. Blood cultures, a little bit different story. The overall yield of blood cultures is incredibly low. It's only about 5%. Now, we going back to the beginning, we talked about etiology. What is the, the bacteria that is going to be found if you have someone who's bacteremic for pneumonia? Strep pneumo. Okay, so you now, you're going to the bedside, you've ordered a blood culture, you're going to draw the blood, and you know the result, even before you send the lab. So how is it going to change your management? It's going to change your management not very often. So 98% of the time or more, you know the result. It's going to be negative or strep pneumo, and that's it. So why are you bothering getting the, getting the culture? Because they're making us. Exactly. So is there value? There is value. There is value on the, in the sickest patients. If the patients end up in the ICU, the yield is considerably higher. And in the ICU patients, you can also do tracheal aspirates and other types of, of cultures so you can get more accurate information. So there are ways to get the accurate information um, in those sick patients. And those are the patients where you may have an atypical organism, where knowing the uh, profile of resistance in that bug may be helpful. Most patients, vast majority of patients, they're going to have strep they're going to get the drugs, they're going to get better, that's it. But there's a few patients that are going to get sick. So Medicare, Jayco comes out and says, okay, you need to get blood cultures to everybody. But it's only the patients that go to the ICU that makes a difference on. So I said, okay, well, you only need to get, patients, you know, you only get blood cultures on ICU patients. So I said, well, how do we know if someone's going to go to the ICU after they're admitted to the hospital? Because you have to get them in the ER, remember? This is, this is an ER measurement. So you have to get them in, when they go to the ER, when they're in the ER. You may be admitted from the floor. If they then did deteriorate and you didn't get blood cultures because you're arranged in the floor and not the ICU, you get dinged. So you don't know. So you're stuck. So you, if you're admitting them to the hospital, you need to get blood cultures. It benefits patients. They go to the ICU. Everyone else, it's just an exercise, and it's a matter of, of completing our requirements. Does that make sense? It doesn't make sense, but is that clear? It's stupid, I know. Um, there are some antigen tests available. I'm not going to go too much into that. Um, it, it's useful for uh, Legionella especially, but you can also do it for pneumococcus. Okay. When you treat someone with pneumonia, you need to choose an antibiotic. You need to start the antibiotic early. 
and you can decide if you're going to go home or they're going to stay in the hospital. And further, and the step we always forget, is we need to address symptomatic relief. And how many times have you seen this scenario, Chuck? A uh, patient comes back and says, hi, I'm in the fast track. I've had, oh, uh, like our friend uh, in bed 23 last night. Hi, I'm, I've got a cough, and I've had this cough for two weeks, and I just took a Z-Pack, and I need, I need another Z-Pack. <laughs> it doesn't work that way, <laughs> because we failed her because we failed address her symptomatic complaint. And her, her symptom that was keeping her up at night and was interfering with her life was her cough. And we didn't address her cough enough. Sure, giving her the antibiotics is going to treat that underlying infection, but it may not relieve her cough. Her cough may last for days, days, even weeks after her infection. If you have a post-viral tracheitis, you can last for weeks. I had one for eight weeks this year. Holy crap, that sucked. So um, you need to address the symptoms. How do you address the symptoms? Okay. Cough suppressants, albuterol is an excellent cough suppressant, steroids if you need to. Okay, getting back to the choice of antibiotics. So uh, we are going to take all these into account when choosing your antibiotic. And the main concern is you need to do the optimal drug for the optimal duration because you don't want to create resistance. If you look at the infectious disease side American guidelines, IDSA guidelines, and there are joint IDSA and ATS guidelines coming out soon. I keep, being, I keep being promised. You need to cover for a pneumococcus. You need to cover for atypicals. Okay, those are the two groups you need, to, you need to cover for. You can't just look at a chest array and decide and know that they have pneumococcus. Usually they're right. Usually they're right. But you can't tell the difference by, by its appearance. So you need to cover for these atypicals as well. You basically got two options if you want to cover for atypicals. Okay, that's going to limit you. If you cover for atypicals, you basically have two options. You can use an advanced macrolide, and this is azithromycin, which we typically use. Also, there's clarithromycin, which is Biaxin, a little bit older drug, and the new drug is Ketek. Or use a respiratory fluoroquinolone. That's levofloxacin, moxifloxacin, gadifloxacin, all those floxins. Which floxin is not included in the respiratory fluoroquinolone group? Ciprofloxacin. That is not a respiratory fluoroquinolone. Ciprofloxacin is not effective against strep pneumo, and it drives me bonkers when I see studies showing, oh, how good my new drug is because it does better than Cipro against strep pneumo. Well, no, duh. Anyway. A penicillin resistance is, becoming, is, is a problem. You guys knew about this. Azithromycin resistance is a bigger problem. This is something that you guys need to know. Look at Iowa here under azithromycin. We're a red state. Ooh, a red state? That's right. Now, how, maps you, how many maps you see we see Nebraska as a blue state? Look at that. That's crazy. All right, anyway. Um, so we have, uh, you know, we have over 20% resistance. Actually, our, our resistance rates here in Iowa run up to 30% or higher among strep pneumo in terms of resistance to azithromycin. Here at the hospital? Or here, well, that's measured at the hospital, yeah. And that's, that's based on, on, on pan uh, statewide cultures. But yeah, that's the recorded number here. So pretty high. So, uh, you know, almost a third. So you need to take that into account. Now, what predicts them having resistance? Well, we don't know too much about azithromycin resistance, but certainly in the case of penicillin resistance, there's a lot of research on this. If you, the risk factors for having drug-resistant strep pneumo include having previous beta-lactam therapy in the last couple months, certainly extremes of age, alcoholism, comorbidities, or exposure to a little rug rat in a daycare center, that's nasty. 
But the big one really is previous beta-lactam antibiotics. If you have a previous exposure to a beta-lactam antibiotic, penicillin, that kind of thing, you're more likely to have a resistant organism. Patients are not going to know if you ask them, excuse me, Mr. Smith, have you had a previous beta-lactam uh, therapy in the last two months? They're not going to know what their class of their antibiotic was. Hey, did you get a pill for antibiotics for infection? Oh, yes. Well, then assume that they have. <coughs> okay, so what do you use? I'm going to try to make this a little pretty simple. If you have a patient who's healthy, who you see them in the ER, and they're going to go home, you just need to cover for that atypical, cover for that for that uh, for the, the strep pneumo, and you're probably fine. In that case, a macrolide is probably okay. Doxycycline is probably also okay. Yes, you're going to have some treatment failures with that op with that approach. If someone is otherwise healthy and has a relatively mild disease, their immune system will do most of the work. And that is an appropriate use of antibiotics. So you can still use your, your precious little Z-Pack. That's perfectly fine. Now, if you've had recent antibiotic therapy, if you're concerned about resistance, if maybe the patient's not quite so perfect um, and healthy, you, you really want to treat them with a macrolide plus a beta-lactam like amoxicillin or augmentin. You actually use both. Or, and what's a lot easier for the patient to take, and, and certainly what we fall into all the time, is we just give them foraclone. And that's appropriate. But I'd like to try to reserve those for patients who need it because we keep using it all the time and resistance is going up. It's nowhere near 30%. It's actually only about 1% to 2%. So we've got, some, we've got some time with it. But if we keep using it like we are, like water, it's gonna, we're, we're going to use it up. If you admit someone to the floor, a macrolide plus beta-lactam, IV, or or fluoroquinolone is appropriate. If you admit someone to the ICU, you need to treat them um, with beta-lactam as well as a fluoroquinolone for, for atypicals. So you can use Zosin and Levaquin. You can use um, you know, azithromycin IV and Amox or Unison or whatever. Is, is the resistance the same with Yeah, yeah, and the, this I was going to just about to mention, there's not a lot of evidence that, that resistances in zithromycin corresponds to treatment failures. You're not seeing 30% of patients having treatment failures, you're seeing much, much less percentages. So again, even though there's a high rate of resistance, if you have some activity, that can usually overcome that. Mm, yeah, that's not correct. Okay. Good. Good point. All right. Drug company. Telling you important information. Okay. Um, Foraclinolones should be reserved. We talked about that. Um, there is some evidence that foraclinolones actually are better. People do better with them. There was one study which demonstrated a 6% absolute risk reduction in mortality. A different study, which I'm not sure, I'm not sure it's been published. It may have, may, have been, may have just been published, but this was presented at a meeting I was at. And it was a separate study, and the same benefit was shown, about the same 6%, which is interesting. This is a mortality benefit. So there may be, there's maybe some good reasons why we should be using fluoroquinolones. I think for sick patients, I think we really should be. It's really, the, it's really the best way to do it. Those are patients being admitted. Yeah. Um, for going to ICUs, you need to include, it's, it's, broad, it's broad, broad spectrum. It's broad spectrum coverage. And you need to address uh, the possibility of, of pseudomonas and those who have been exposed to healthcare environments. 
that's a separate issue. That's healthcare associated pneumonia, which is this is not the focus of this of this presentation. I'll just specify that for the podcast. Thank you very much. Did the demographics get separated pretty well with those? Uh, no. Those, that was all comers. So that 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 that, that study is subject to a lot of bias. It's just it's just a registration um, uh, register uh, register register cases. Um, this is another. This is the other like third like big important point. You guys heard about this initiating therapy early, okay? This in addition to getting blood cultures, this is another healthcare measure. This, unlike blood cultures, this was one I really believe in. I really agree with. There is literature on both sides of this of the story. People could argue that this is probably not uh, a totally you know reasonable thing to do. However, um, there is good evidence that it is that it does it is associated with decreased length of stay. It is associated with reduced rates of complications. So if you're bringing someone in, you need to give them antibiotics. Now, does that mean you need to hand out levoquin at triage? No. And yes, some ERs are doing that. I swear. It's true. I talked to people who did it. I can't believe it. But anyway, they actually just, oh, you have a cough? Here's your lubricant. Because we're, we're going to be really good on our JCO measure. That's not the point. That's not the point. That's, that's bad. Bad, bad. But once you, di once you decide, not diagnose pneumonia, once you decide they likely have an infection, that's an okay time to start an antibiotic. And you should. Every patient admitted to the hospital with an infection absolutely positively has to get antibiotics in the ER. This is a measure that we're held to as faculty, and this is a measure that we're going to enforce that you guys do as, as residents, and it's a really good practice, and there's good evidence for that why it's a good practice to do. You may, you may get lip from a medicine person at some point, oh, why did you start antibiotics? I want to make the decision myself. No, you guys don't get to make the decision. That's our job. We get to make a decision on starting antibiotics, and we're going to start antibiotics, which is why it's probably a good idea to go ahead and draw some cultures in the ER, because that's the only opportunity we have to get those pure cultures. So we're not drawing the cultures for us. We're drawing the cultures to make someone else happy. So let's draw the cultures, let's calm them down, and then let's do something that really helps the patient, which is starting that antibiotic. Uh, should the patient be admitted in the first place? You guys are all familiar with the fine criteria? Little paper up on the, on the board down in the ER? Okay. Um, skip that. So, if you go through the fine criteria and you take this 49-year-old male with a respiratory rate of 28, a blood pressure of 93 over 30, holy crap, a temperature of 39, and a, and a pulse of 120, and you calculate them on the fine criteria, you use this scale, you use this really complicated process, this, this well-accepted, widespread practice, what, what does it come out to be on the criteria? It comes out as 49. It comes out as uh, class one, send home. No risk for death in the, in, from pneumonia or 0.05 death, you know, mortality. That's ins if you, if I catch any of you sending a patient home with those vital signs, I'm going to bring your little necks. That's ridiculous. What's missing from the vital sign? Yeah, there's this other vital sign, this fifth vital sign. No, Jaco, it's not pain, it's pulse ox. It's the fifth vital sign. Pulse ox, amazing enough, was not part of the original criteria. Huh? Um, it's been it's been re-released, and and I think the I think the name of the title was the net title of the article was like the the uh, revised fine criteria or something like this. And um, in the revised criteria, the first step in the process is 
are they hypoxic? Yes, no. And if they are hypoxic, it doesn't really apply. So if they are hypoxic, they go into the hospital. Oxygen is something you can't provide at home. But if they are, um, and if it's obvious that they're very sick, you know, don't just be a slave to the, to the study. You know, think, use your brain. This patient will likely improve significantly with resuscitation. Give them a couple of liters of fluid, liters of fluid give them some, some acetaminophen, they will probably improve. Those numbers will probably look better when they actually you know, do leave if that's what you decide to do. But as the initial vital signs, those are really bad. Okay, how long do you treat people for? If you're treating them as an outpatient, it's pretty simple. It's five days regardless of what you use. Okay. Um, ZPAC, you guys know, are familiar with, it's five days. Levoquin, it's 750 milligrams for five days. And that's for outpatient. Inpatient, just start the drug and let someone else worry about it. Okay, so key points today. Do not treat acute antibiotics, acute bronchitis with antibiotics. It doesn't help. Treat their symptoms. An abnormal chest X-ray is part of the case definition, but um, there's a, you know, you, you need to recognize the limitations of the chest X-ray. Abnormal vital signs are not only useful to know who's going to have a positive chest X-ray, it's also indicative of the prognosis, as we demonstrated by the fine criteria. Initiate therapy, initiate therapy early with the macrolide plus minus beta-lactam or chloroquinolone. Any questions on that? 